please remain standing as we read God's Word together. This morning we will look at Genesis chapter 3 and Matthew 1. This is God's Word. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then in Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, let's pray together. Our great God, we remember the words of the angel Gabriel in this particular season who would come to Mary and say, no word of God will ever fail, to which she would reply, may then your word be fulfilled to me. And that is our prayer this morning, as we would unpack your scriptures, help us to have faith that is a trusting in your written word. And all for Jesus' sake we pray it. Amen. Please, you may be seated. Well, if you were here with us last week, you noticed that we began an Advent series, The Crises of Christmas, with kind of a subtitle, Far as the Curse is Found. And the point is to, to bring to light, to trace back the roots of what took place in the fall, and how does the Lord Jesus Christ then provide a, a redemption? How does He redeem the curse in which we fell into? And if you heard Pastor Smith, he, he told us the first proclamation using Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And, and that's the first proclamation of the gospel. That's where we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a proclamation that good news will come. A promise has been made. But until then, what are we to do? How do we understand the world in which we live? Well, the obvious statement would be to say we live in a world of conflict, don't we? Two kingdoms, you might say. The kingdom of God and even the kingdom of Satan, or better yet, we might say the kingdom of sin and death. There's a war going on, a war between obedience and disobedience. One author I think, details it for us quite helpfully. This is what he says. 
It's pervasive. He's speaking of the conflict, the war that's going on. It's pervasive, running through every aspect of creation and every human endeavor. There is no neutral territory, no area of life that is free from the struggle. Both God and Satan lay claim to all things. What we experience is warring sovereignties, two regimes that stand over against one another in their contention for everything. And nothing, no aspect of life is neutral or uncontested. And you might say, yeah, I agree. But often we hear that and we, we quickly move on. Have you considered the depths of what this man is saying? He's going to go on to say, sin touches everything. Sexuality to automobile design. From showing a three-year-old how to tie a shoe to banking and economic systems. From prayer to politics. He's saying there's a war far greater and larger than we consider it to be. It touches everything. And so this morning we're looking at the pregnancy of Mary. And maybe you're saying, crises, how, how is that a crisis? It's this well-packaged Christmas story that we delight to tell our children But have you paid any attention to the fact that there's a crisis just by her nature of being pregnant? Her pregnancy tells us something. It tells us that there's a brokenness in our world. Specifically, this morning we want to talk about the brokenness of family. And how does God in His promise through His Son, how does He rebuild it? How does He redeem such a curse? And so I want to look at that in two points. The biological family. We'll look at Genesis 3 to understand it. And then I want to talk about the spiritual family. And I want to zero in on a little phrase you'll see in Matthew chapter 1. And I'll reference one other scripture as well. So look with me in Genesis chapter 3. We're we're talking about the biological family. And I don't think there's any shock to anyone in the room if I were to say the family is broken. I think generally we would all admit to that. But it's why or how is the family broken? You see, we often, well, we offer explanation, don't we? Perhaps the family is broken, we might say, because of the morality in our country. Maybe the family is broken because there's shifts away from the nuclear family structure. Maybe the family is broken Because we blame it on the decline of religion. Maybe we blame the brokenness of family on the incline or rise of the confusion in gender and sexuality. The problem, however, is Genesis, the scriptures point to something drastically different. It says the roots of our problem are not in 2020. It's not in modern day language. The scripture is giving us a different route, a different direction. And in fact, we should take comfort in the fact that the scriptures aren't immune to telling you how broken the family might be. It shows up very early. You can see it in chapter 3 of Genesis. That's what we call the fall, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and sin enters the world. Before that, we recognize God and his creative nature. Genesis 1 and 2, he's created all of creation and it's beautiful. He creates the family and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Be together, enjoy life together. 
And you're very clear on what takes place in Genesis chapter 3. But what we tend to let our minds go to is what are the judgments, what are the uh, curses that God places? Well, sin enters the world. All are now sinful. We are born into sin. Perhaps you even think to the curse of the ground. That working is going to be hard. It will not produce the fruit that you would hope it to do or hope it to be. The problem is we skip over the judgment of God when he talks to Adam and Eve as it pertains to the family. There's implications and applications, you might say, to what God says to Adam and Eve. What, what does God say in his judgment to Adam and Eve? To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I want you to think about that for a moment. I'll multiply your pain in childbearing. Is that a reference to what it means to be pregnant? Is that just a, a reference to what the physical effects are in delivery? Is that only an effect to what challenges and changes take place to a woman who is with child? I don't think so. I think the scripture has a much wider context in mind. There's pain in childbearing. That's what's going to happen, God says. There's pain. What do we recognize pain to look like in childbearing? You don't need to go much further. Genesis chapter 4, consider what takes place. Adam and Eve, they have two children, Cain and Abel. And you know that story, don't you? Cain, jealous of his younger brother Abel and the worship that Abel has, the relationship that Abel has with God, he kills him. Do you know what Eve says at that moment? Genesis chapter 4 tells us that God's going to provide another son, but notice the words that Eve herself has to utter. It says, and Adam knew his wife again, and she, that's speaking of Eve, bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed, that's what the word, that's the name Seth, that's what it means. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Just take a moment to think about what that would have been like. Ladies, to utter those words of your own children. My one son kills my other son. That's painful. And God says, yep, as sin enters the world, there's pain in childbearing. Some of you know the pain in childbearing at the loss of a child in the womb. Some of you know pain in childbearing just by very nature that you can't have them or are struggling to do so. Isn't that what Rachel says in Genesis chapter 30 when she has been unable to conceive? And what does she say to the Lord? Give me children or I shall die. Isn't that what takes place with Hannah? Who, when the scriptures talk about her, says that at the temple she would weep bitterly even to the point of making vows unto the Lord, if you will just give me a child, this is what I will do. I'll do anything. Give me 
a child, please. What about Abraham and Sarah? They can't have children. It's so hard. They take matters into their own hands. And they bring another woman involved. There's pain in childbearing. Unless we think that it just has something to do with the pregnancy, the delivery, and and what just takes place. What about Jacob? What about Jacob and his many sons? You know that story. He has 12 sons. And what do the older sons do? Well, they sell the youngest, the most beloved son of Jacob, into slavery. And then they come back and they lie to their father. And they say, your youngest son, here's his coat. He died. Only later for Jacob to find out, no, he didn't die. My other sons sold him into slavery. And at the very end of Jacob's life, he has his sons together. And at what should be a joyous and an incredible occasion, he's about to give the blessings and the inheritance for his children. Let me tell you how excited I am that you are my children. This is the blessing of God upon you. What does Jacob have to say to his sons? To Reuben, you are unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you have defiled your father's bed. To Simeon and Levi, he says, let my soul come not into their counsel. Be not joined to their company. Cursed be their anger. That's a parent offering blessing to his children. There's pain in childbearing. That's the effects of sin and the curse. It's not the only one, is it? God continues. And what does he tell Eve? Don't get mixed up in the language. I understand lots of people have interpretations of what does it mean that she will have desire over her husband. What's the point? Marriages, they're flawed. And if you're married in here, you know that. There's conflict. And it comes from all sides. It's not easy. And then he says to Adam, pain, pain you shall eat. What is the point? Even being a parent is not easy. It's not going to be easy to care for your family anymore. What it means to provide and take care of, you will do so in pain because of sin. The family is broken. It starts in Genesis chapter 3 with the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And the reason why I want you to be clear on that is because we have to be clear on how we enter this world. We don't enter into a world in a state of neutrality. No, we enter a family, and it just happens to be a family of sin and death because of what took place in the garden. There's pain. And so I want to encourage you, when you experience troubles, problems, don't look to blame others or circumstances. Don't pin it on them. In fact, consider yourself. We are flawed people. We have sin, and it affects every relationship we have. There's pain And perhaps you might say, I I understand 
what you're talking about, but I don't think you understand how hard I work to be a good husband or a good wife or a good parent. I work really hard. And I would say to you, I'm so glad, but don't put too much trust in your work or what you might call your goodness. I'm sure many of you have heard the misguided teaching. There's a phrase that's often used nowadays. It's called the prosperity gospel. And what it is, is it's a, it's a misguided belief that says if you have enough faith, God will bless you financially. God will bless you physically. You will have fewer or less problems. The reason I bring that up is we might have a functional belief when it comes to family. Instead of having enough faith for finances, maybe we say to ourselves, we just need enough faith for family. Isn't that what you hear? Isn't that what you read? Isn't that what the famous blogs are, especially for women? Be an excellent wife, and here's how to do it. If you'll just do these things, you'll have a great marriage. Your children will just love you. Isn't that what Proverbs 31 says? Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her. Just do these things, and it will go well. I have bad news for you. When you look at Proverbs 31, it's not talking about a physical woman. So ladies, if that's your comparison chart, you're looking at the wrong place. That's a picture of wisdom. No person can be that. Men, you have bought the same lies. Be this kind of dad. Do these kind of activities and your family will be okay. Parents, we we believe those lies to train your children up in the way that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Is that the experience of your life, and your world, that people who are trying hard, they get exactly what they want. And you see that these are verses in the Bible I'm not just pulling from anywhere. And I want you to know they are true truths. But how we teach them, how we expound on them, what we teach is Christian marriages and Christian families, the blessings of God or the lack thereof, well, it's based on a, a works righteousness. A quid pro quo. If you do your part, then God will definitely bless you. No, dear friends, these are principles laid out in the Scripture for us to live by and practice, but it's because it reflects God. It reflects who He is. It reflects how God ordinarily distributes blessing. But there's a difference between ordinarily and necessarily. So do not be fooled into thinking you know the work of God and how he's going to work. If you will do X, Y, Z, you will definitely get A, B, C. That is not the teaching of the scriptures. And the point is the biological family, it's broken. Relationships have been shattered. It was broken. It is broken. And it will be broken. Until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And the reason? Well, the Lord Jesus tells Nicodemus, doesn't he? The reason why it's broken is he tells Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. But spirit gives birth to spirit. 
What's the point of that? It means that flesh cannot redeem itself. It means there is no way for flesh to reverse the curse, as you might say. In fact, if there's going to be any level of redemption, it's going to have to be initiated by God to satisfy his own demands. It cannot be done on our end, on our part. And that's the entire second point. If the biological family is in ruins, what about the spiritual family? Look with what we read in Matthew chapter 1. I want to help you understand what's going on. Verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And I want you to pause for a moment. When you read that little phrase, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, what, we're, what you understand it to mean is, Here's how Jesus was born. That's actually not the Greek word here. In fact, the Greek word for birth is not the traditional word you and I use. When we talk about birthday parties and things like that, that's not the word that's being used here. The word that's being used is to talk about its origin. And so what Matthew is trying to say is, do you want to know where and how Jesus came about in physical terms? He's bringing our attention to say, Jesus originated not in human flesh, He was the Son of God way before He became into man. They want us to understand there's something true about the birth of Jesus. It's a fulfillment truth. You see, David's line is at stake. It's not the flesh of David that we're to understand. It's the Spirit. That's the point. The point is flesh could not redeem. What Israel needed, what the world needed, what we still need could not be conceived in traditional ways because we are broken. And so what Matthew is saying, this is not traditional. This is something altogether different. And that is why that little phrase in verse, actually he uses it twice, but you can see it clearly in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There is something altogether different about Jesus. The answer that Jesus gave to Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Here's the answer. He's answering it right here in human form. We're witnessing a miraculous conception. It's bringing about life and and specifically the life of the God-man in Mary. And in fact, what you're getting is this event has ripple effects that will take place for the rest of the scriptures and all time. Is that what you thought about when we read that verse this morning? Did you see all eternity taking place? In these little words, do the scriptures actually help us understand what's taking place here? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. John Flavel, Flavel, you might say it, he, best, he said something about the providence of God. He said, to understand providence, it's best read backwards. If you want to understand what God is doing, you often look back. And so when you want to recognize the works of God, you look back. Now, we have the Apostle Paul who would redo this text and give you a modern-day interpretation. What's the theology of Matthew chapter 1? If you've got your Bibles, I want you to flip to Galatians chapter 4. 
Let me show you Paul's summary statement of Matthew 1. This is what Paul says. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What's the answer? It's a new family. It's a united family. It's an eternal family. It's a holy family. Did you see that? That's what Paul means when he says, God sent forth his son. What's the point? He's talking about the fact that Jesus existed before he was born as a man. He was sent from heaven. The whole point of that is to help you understand his divinity. This is the son of God. Paul says he was sent forth from heaven, born of a woman. Here's the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation of the son of God. And he was born such that he would be under the law. Why under the law? Because we needed someone in flesh to obey where we have disobeyed. He has been put under the law in which he would obey it perfectly. And he obeyed it so well that he actually, he experienced the curse of the law in our place. And that's why Paul had earlier said, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. He's talking about Jesus Jesus took upon the curse that we might be redeemed. And why am I drawing your attention here? How does this fit into what we're saying? Yes, there is a redeeming purpose, but there's an added element. Did you catch what Paul is telling you? There's an added element to being redeemed in Christ. And what is it? We call it adoption. That's the theological term. That's actually the word that Paul uses. We are adopted. You see, it would have been more than enough for God just to rescue us from sin and slavery to it. It would have been more than enough to free us from captivity. But God doesn't stop there. He goes further and says, you're not just free, you're mine. You are my children. You are my sons and daughters. I have adopted you. You recognize we don't just have peace in the sense that there's a treaty. No, we have peace and we have family. We are brought into a relationship with him. And the point of this is Paul's not trying to give some kind of pep talk and say, I hope you feel better about yourself. When he's talking about adoption, he's talking about a judicial act. There's something legally binding here. And this is how Paul talks about you and me if you are in Christ Jesus. This is the spiritual family of God. It's an act that, well, it doesn't have a process. It's not dependent upon your maturity. It concerns your status. It's a, well, it's a singular, non-repeatable, unilateral event based on love, choice, and the authoritative decree of God. And we call that promise. We call that assurance. We call that Jesus. And that's what begins 
at Christmas, God begins the work of building or rebuilding his family. You see, when Jesus dies on the cross, it's a pronouncement to the rest of the world. Here's the signed adoption papers, and they're yours if you would but believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, that's why he says, after the third day, he rises from the tomb. He finds the women who met him there. And do you know what he says to them? Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. You see, before then, he speaks to them as friends. But upon the resurrection, what does Jesus consider them as? Brothers. The family of God is here. John in chapter 1 is going to put it a little bit differently. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, that is authority, to become children of God. You fast forward in the scriptures in his epistle. What is he going to say as he reflects upon the fact as he's a child of God? He says, see, behold, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And you and I ought to be in amazement of that very verse. Because what does John tell you as a believer in Christ Jesus? You look to God as your Father. And that is not to be taken for granted. It is culturally unacceptable for John to say something like that during his time. You see, in Jewish society and tradition, children were taught to memorize a list of names, titles, as to how they could talk to God in prayer. Do you know what was absent from that list? Father. And in fact, as a German scholar would note in his study of fatherhood in Jewish uh, society, when he's looking at literature and he's looking at society, do you know what he says? The word father in relation to God doesn't show up until after the 10th century. That's a thousand years of never being able to come into the throne room of God and recognize him as your father, one who loves you, who didn't just save you. He wants you as his child. They don't get to call him father. That's the kind of access you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We call him father. For he has adopted us into his family. For myself, adoption has become a little bit more personally relevant as uh, we have some family members who have been in the process of adopting. And uh, over the Thanksgiving break, my family was able to go and visit some of them. And I'd heard about the little boy uh, that they've been fostering, but I'd never met him in person. And he is the sweetest little boy I could imagine. The, the largest smile. He's never met me in person. And the only thing he could do when I would show up is he kept calling me, Uncle Danny, Uncle Danny. He would ask, can I sit in your lap? Let me read to you these stories. It was unbelievable. And then I would watch him play and he would just continually call them, Mommy, Daddy, and, and for the rest of the children, these are his brothers and sisters. And then the night came and I learned a little bit more about his history more about where he came from. And one particular thing, it broke my heart. 
He's got a, he's got a big past. He's autistic. And so upon fostering, it was about the time in which he was to go to school. And teachers and specialists were, were helping him. He was, he was behind, and they were trying to bring him up to speed. And everyone began to notice a challenge. And you would never believe what the challenge was. He didn't know what name to write on his paper. It's not true with God. He knows your name. And he has adopted you into his family. It's an event that cannot be altered. You do not have to question whether or not you are his. That is what Jesus did for you on the cross. And I understand the attacks and the lies of the world that would want you to believe otherwise. What would we hear from the world? Are you sure you are a son or daughter of God? Don't you remember what you've done? Where you have come from? Are you sure that you're in this family? I look around and you guys look pretty different. You think different. You act different. You look different. Are you sure that he's going to keep you? See, the world's going to tell you you're an afterthought. You're second choice. You're a runner-up. But Jesus is saying, absolutely not. My death sealed your guarantee as a child of God. And that's what Paul is saying in Galatians 4, isn't he? He's not just giving you a promise. He's giving you an assurance. He sends the Holy Spirit into your life as a guarantee that you are my son. You are my daughter. You have moved from slavery. When we talk about adoption, it's transfer from one family to another. You have moved from this family of sin and death, and you have been brought into this family of sonship. It's an unbelievable reality. J.I. Packer in his book, you might even be familiar with it, Knowing God. He has a chapter in there called Sons of God. And what he is talking about is he's saying the highest privilege of a Christian is adoption. Being a child of God. And this is what he says. Justification is our greatest spiritual need. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher. Because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and he establishes us as children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And that's what the spiritual family is all about. The God-man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ being sent forth by the Father. Born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That you and I might be called children of God. And I'm, I'm imploring you on that behalf because it's not a, just about you. You don't say things like, this is between me and God. 
This is a family. You recognize that. Jesus didn't die just for individuals. He brought people into a family. And that's what he tells the crowds. Do you remember that story later in his ministry? He's just healed a demon-possessed, blind, mute man, and they want more. And his mother and brothers think that they can come and interrupt him. And what is Jesus' question? Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And what does he say? What does he do? He looks to the crowd and he says, you are my mother. You are my brothers if you do the will of my Father in heaven. He wants you to redefine yourself, not in terms of a biological family, but of a spiritual family. He's not wanting you to answer this question of who's your daddy and where are you from. He wants you to understand who do you serve? What God do you serve? What family are you in? I had a friend in seminary. He used to reach out to me in conversation. Rarely would he use my name. He would say, hey, my eternal friend. And maybe better we could have said, hey, my eternal brother. That's what we're talking about this morning. It's quite simple, isn't it? What family are you in? Who do you trust? That's what the Lord Jesus did, building, rebuilding a spiritual family. If you are unclear about what it means to be a Christian, if you're unclear about what it means to be in the family of God, let me close with an illustration. I read a short article about sheep. That's what pastors do. They read about sheep. I want you to imagine yourself I don't know, Scotland or some place where there's a lot of sheep. When you're looking at a flock of sheep, if you look out and you notice there's a, there's a little lamb it's running around, and, and when you look closely, it, it looks like there might be something tied onto it, a little bit more than everyone else. Uh, there there's a, seems like there's a second fleece, you might say. There is, and it's intentional. You see, what would happen is, a sheep, when, it, when a, a baby lamb is born, if its mother died, they would, they would sew a, an, an extra fleece onto it. Because without nourishment, without the care of a mother, the sheep would die. The lamb would die. But it, it's not as simple as to just take a lamb and, and force some other female sheep to, to love it. And so in larger flocks, it would be fairly common that you would have one lamb who is an orphan because its mom died, and then you would have a mother sheep who's lost a lamb. And shepherds would take that little lamb, and they would skin the dead lamb. They would take its fleece, and they would tie it on to the other one, and they would hand it to the mother so that the mother, upon smelling and seeing, would adopt it as her own. That's what we're talking about this Advent season. That's what comes to fruition at the birth of Christ and through his work on the cross. And God sees you. He smells you. He, he knows you as his own. And we are welcomed into his family to call him Father. Let me pray for us. Our great God and 
Father. We thank you for being a Father to us. And that one of the great assurances we have is the fact that you send the Holy Spirit into our hearts, moving us to cry out, Abba, Father. We are able to pray, not as orphans, not as outsiders, but dearly loved children. We marvel at the fact, O Lord, that you would send your Son to redeem many lost sons and daughters, that you would bring about a family that would be united to you. So, Lord, we pray as we continually remember this Advent, this first coming, the appearance of Christ in human flesh, that we would keep in tension the second coming, because you have signed in blood our adoption through your atoning work of Christ. May we then be clothed, O Lord, in the righteous robe of Christ through faith and repentance, declaring we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price and are now in the family of God. Do such a work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.